Well, good morning, everyone. If you brought a copy of God's Word, I would invite you to find Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. It is not uh, a little irony uh, to know that uh, the verse we left off on in Romans chapter 12 comes on this day. This day today, this Sunday, November 2nd, is the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church in the world. And where we left off in our study of Romans are these words, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. That's not an easy thing to do. And we live in a country where we enjoy freedoms, so much so that in a few days many of you will be voting, unless you voted ahead of time already. Anyway, we get to vote. That, is, that was, up until a couple of hundred years ago, absolutely unheard of in this world. And so we think that Christianity is the whipping boy of the, uh, of the liberal press, and we bemoan this. And Let me tell you something. What we are enduring in the United States of America is nothing compared to what our brothers and sisters are enduring in other places in this world. There are 60 other countries, 60, where persecution of varying degrees is taking place. And in many, not just a few, of those countries, the very lives and livelihoods of those who follow Jesus are at stake every single day. So remember that when you start to complain about the little pressure on you because this or that. It's real. I'm not denying it. But this being the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, it would only be right that we begin our time in prayer for them. You know, if you were to ask the persecuted church, and that has been done by a number of organizations, not the least of which is Voice of the Martyrs, which everyone should be cued in on. But if you were to ask them what the persecuted church, what, they're at, what the number one thing they, they ask from us in the free world is this. It's not our money. It's not our people. It's not even our missionaries. It's prayer. They're asking us to pray for them, that they will be, that they will be faithful unto death, that they, that they might get that crown of life, etc. And so we want to pray in accordance with that verse, that they would understand the meaning of blessing their persecutors. And uh, I hope we'll understand it a little bit more as a result of our time today as well. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we are thankful today that we can begin our time lifting up those around this world, your world, the world you gave your son for, who have fallen in love with Jesus. They've placed their faith in him. They have a relationship with him. And, uh, and they have no intention of forsaking the faith. And consequently, Lord, they are enduring pressure and, and uh, derision and threatenings and in many cases physical violence and this being over their heads every single day. And we ask, Lord, that you would forgive us for not praying for them as we are now. We are praying in accordance with their very own wishes, Lord, that you would keep them faithful. That they would learn as well how, what it means to bless those who persecute them, bless and do not curse. And to leave vengeance to you because you will repay, dear God. 
lift up the persecuted church and may their outstanding witness cause many of their persecutors to fall to their knees and to bow their hearts to the resurrected one we just sang about, your son, our Lord Jesus, whose name we pray in. Amen. Well, if you're there in Romans chapter 12, we pick it up there where Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, live in harmony with one another. Verse 16, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry... Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals of fire upon his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, these words were written to the church at Rome, where This book we've been studying, Romans, were the Roman Christians, the Christians who lived in Rome. And there is no historical evidence that at the time of this writing that they were enduring any persecution. It would come, but it was sort of a setup for them. But think about that. If they were not enduring persecution at the time of this writing, when they would have received the letter, that makes this letter both very practical and very personal for you and me. That is this segment of the letter. Something else, this is not a, this is not, this, this stuff we're talking about, vengeance is mine, don't repay evil for evil, you know, as much as is within you, lies within you, be at peace. This is not a notation to nations. This is not a, a letter to the politics, the governments. It's a letter to you. It's a letter to me. We're going to get to the governments. We're going to get to Romans chapter 13 and our responsibilities to government. Right now, we're talking about you, we're talking about me, and we're talking about the people we interact with, we struggle with, we fight with, we come to terms with, we ask for forgiveness for, or do we? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 all the way to this passage, sort of, the whole passage, really, is what we have called unpacking the Christian life. This is a passage of scripture that is challenging the person who has already been saved, already dedicated their life to Jesus. What do you look like when the stuffing starts to get knocked out of you through the vicissitudes of life, through the circumstances of life, through the changes and the troubles and the trials and the, all the ugh, that we have to deal with? And so much of that ugh, is with people, right? And how do we respond? And so Paul is... He's laying that out. This is what the quintessential dedicated Christian looks like. And so this passage is 
predicated upon the fact that you already know Jesus. And I don't assume you already know Jesus. Not all of you, anyway. Some of you still need to know Jesus. Some of you need to trust Jesus as your Savior. And until you do, you'll never understand the stuffing of this individual in verses 9 through 21 that Paul's been laying out. You won't understand it. And furthermore, if you do, do know Jesus and you've never dedicated your life to him, which is what verses 1 and 2 are saying, if you've never you know, dedicated yourself to him, your whole body, and not that you're perfect, but you dedicate yourself, if you've never done that, you too will always struggle with the stuffings of what a true follower of Jesus is supposed to look like and react in situations like we just read about, and we'll work through here in moments to come. There may be no greater test to the reality and the depth of one's Christian life than when we are hurt by someone else. Would you agree with that? Or when we hurt someone else. You know, many years ago, in the first church I pastored, I mean like 25, 26 years ago, we had a guy who hadn't been a Christian all that long. He sang special music, some kind of a southern twang. I hated it. But it didn't matter. He sang, and he was a smoker. So I I talked to him that week, and I said, Hey, dude, until uh, until you can get over your smoking habit, you can't sing anymore. I nearly ruined the man's faith. And within the next six, eight months, God began to work in my heart and show me what a legalistic, not that we're asking you to light up here, okay? (laughs) But just that it was so wrong the way I approached him. It was just so wrong. And I sought his forgiveness and it was granted and we were restored. Friends to this day. I have been both the recipient of hurt as well, and to my shame, as a dispenser of it. I acknowledge it up front. When verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, he's, he's asking us to respond in grace. This is the grace of God at work in your life. God is a God of grace and he expects the people he redeems to act the same. It's one thing to withhold vengeance from those who hurt us. It's another thing to bless them. And here, listen carefully to what I'm saying here. The reason that this is, the reason for this is because of our call to be otherly. How's that for a word? Otherly. Jesus summed it up in Luke chapter 6. Here's how he put it. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, What benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And, and, and if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? 
Yes, even sinners do the same, right? Anything short of what this verse is saying, anything short of blessing those who persecute you, is, are you ready for this? Is sameness. Sameness. If you want to be the same as everybody else, you just act like everybody else. Right? You do good to those who do good to you. Amen. And yet we're told just the opposite here. We're told just the opposite. Our call here is to be otherly. Hence, what's the benefit? What's the credit to you? There's no benefit. There's no credit when we are same. So that sort of kind of gets us going here, doesn't it? When he tells us in verse 16, live in harmony. Now that hints at the fact that some of our greatest tests, some of our greatest struggles, some of our deepest hurts, will come at the hands of fellow Christians. Now, on the surface, that is insane. And yet, deep down, there is a reality here, isn't there? Why is that? Why is verse 17 say what it does? You go back to Rome, well, if you, probably most of you never left it, but Romans 12, 17, repay No one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Why? Because, why are we to do that? Because that's what everybody else does. That's sameness. It's it's not otherly. And so in verse 18, when he says, and this is sort of the, this is sort of the, this is the one we're going to camp on because this is the one we struggle so much with. There's a lot of reality. This verse here is just pregnant with reality. When he says, As if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So look at this. He could just say, look, you're a Christian now. You're dedicated to Jesus now. Live peaceably with everyone. But rather, he puts not one, but two governors against it. If possible, implication, it's not always. As much as it depends on you, implication, you've exhausted yourself. In the process, live peaceably with one another. And then, the verse that half of you have memorized, Vengeance is mine! I will repay, saith the Lord, right? That's a quote right out of Deuteronomy 32, so this truth of, Giving vengeance to God is is not new, is what he's saying. This is something I've always been about. It's an Old Testament truth. It's a New Testament truth. It's a universal truth to followers of God. Why? Because it makes us otherly. Listen, Paul is not saying that vengeance is not a part of God's plan. He's saying it's not, it shouldn't be a part of our plan. That's what he's saying. God is a God of vengeance. He is righteous. He is just. And he will mete out his punishment in that day.
It is inextricably tied to his justice and his righteousness, that is vengeance. But it's not tied to you and it's not tied to me. We're called not to be. This is when we become otherly. There's a proverb in Proverbs 24 that it's, it's very powerful. It's actually very insightful. Proverbs 24, verses 17 and 18 says that don't rejoice when your enemy falls and don't let your heart be glad when he, when he stumbles. Watch this. Lest the Lord see it as if he wouldn't and be displeased, which of course he would be, and then watch this. Turn away his anger from him. Do you see what happens? I want you to just keep it up there and think on this for a moment. When we rejoice or even take glee in any way in the downfall of our enemies, of our detractors, anyone who opposes us, listen to this, God removes his perfect retribution from that life. That's what that verse is telling me. Imagine an enemy beginning to stumble you know, and fall, but God himself catches him and pulls him back up. All because in your heart you went, ee. On the contrary, verse 20, look at it. On the contrary, to the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, you give him something to drink. To the contrary of what? Well, it's pretty obvious. Cursing repaying, avenging. And when you don't do that, when you act otherly, God heaps. The Greek word means exactly what you're you're pictured. Pile on, add to, that's what it means. Burning coals, fire on their heads. There's differing views to what that phrase means. Some just think it means to render somebody without an excuse. Others see an Egyptian custom where back in the day, back in Bible times, Egyptians, if, if they were shamed, if they were ashamed, they would, they would literally go around with a, with a big bowl of, of coals over their head, holding it out of contrition for their sins to show everyone that they're shamed by what they did. And the idea is that when we act other, when otherly trumps sameness, There is a divinely dispensed sense of guilt that God gives to them. That's the idea here. Pretty powerful if you think on that. Others think that this is really dealing with judgment because he's saying, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So it's in the context of judgment. And it's saying when we act otherly toward our detractors, toward our haters, toward our enemies, when we act otherly and not same, that in that day, in that judgment day, it's going to be as if this is just piling on to them because they're going to see all these opportunities they had to turn to God by the godly response of his children. And it makes their judgment even more awful. And whether or not this is future or present tense, he takes us to the present when he ends up by saying, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome what? Evil with good. And so we are going to make this as we approach the communion table this morning.
very, very practical. I want to deal with some assumptions, and then I'm going to tell you how to overcome evil. Are you ready? First, the assumptions. Here's the first one. We are destined for struggles in our earthly relationships. Imagine that. We are destined for struggles in our earthly relationships. They are inevitable. Jesus said that we are at enmity with the world. In this world you'll have tribulation, but rejoice, I've overcome the world, right? John agrees with that. He says, don't love the world or the things in the world. You do that, the love of the Father isn't in you. All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the sinful pride of life, it's not of the Father, it's of the world. Hey, the world's passing away and all of its lust, but he who does the will of the Father abides what? Forever. And James even agrees and says, look, friendship, when you snuggle on up to the world, you are at enmity with God. So you, not, you might as well just expect that I, I, as a result of that, you're going to have Issues with relationship, especially with the non-believers. So when a young person in one of our five good news clubs hands out a little innocent flyer inviting another young person to the to enter, boom! The school comes down. This isn't right. And you can pray about that. We're still in the midst of all of that right now. And so, when a dedicated follower of Jesus who happens to be a coach in another public school, who just the other day was riding in a a van full of individuals, and one of those students inquired about her faith and actually kept pressing her on her faith, so she began to lovingly, humbly express her faith, didn't get overly preachy, just shared the truth, and boom, there was one individual in that van who didn't want to hear it and they went to their parents who went to the school you say oh that's just so awful that's so awful let me tell you something just expect it okay it's the way it is we have to expect these things whether it's right or wrong so we expect these things this is our, we're destined for these things. But what about the relation? This gets a little closer to home for most of us here. What about those relationships in the Christian realm that go awry? Unless you're lumps on a lug, unless you never in, enter ever into a vibrant, even spirited relationships, if you don't ever... You, We're going to have impasses. We're going to have struggles. We're going to have misunderstandings. We're going to have relationship-threatening issues that will occur in our lives. And some of you are thinking of one right now in your own life. That's just normal. Disagreements are, in, in my experience, often the very venue to deeper friendships. But they become harder when they become personal. Isn't that true? It hurts when it's personal. Pastor, you know, that isn't true. You do that all the time. And my inner lawyer comes up, I don't do that. Yes, you do. Only by pride comes contention. Have you ever read that? 
So expect the struggles, but hopefully the struggles will be for your and my personal refinement. Here's the second thing. People disagree. How's that for profound? It's not only our nature to do so, because no two people are exactly alike. No people will think exactly alike. Yet if our disagreements are handled rightly, they can become the vehicles by which a better plan, a better approach, a better handling of the crisis at hand, or some such thing. And a better product will be produced. In this case, the product of a friendship between me and my brother, me and my sister. People just disagree. That's just normal. Here's a third thing. Our intentions are often misunderstood. Can I get an amen on that? I mean, in this day of texting and emails and various social mediums, it's easy to be misinterpreted, to have one's attitude, one, you know, one's intention misconstrued, turned into a circus mirror in the mind of a person who's just read it, Right? And yet it's always been like that. Paul, or not Paul, David wrote, every day they twist my words. Have you ever read that? That was David, 900 B.C. I wrote a public letter a little less than two years ago. Actually, there was a public letter that went out from a major institution. It dealt with our church. It dealt with me personally. It was a public letter that was, was fraught with... Uh, all kinds of, of untruths. In fact, one was a flat-out lie, and I was, I was ticked. Admittedly, I was ticked. Because it was a public letter, I had to re- respond publicly. By golly, I did respond publicly. You should have seen the original letter. No, I'm glad you didn't. In fact, I wrote that letter... I have everything many of you read in the public letter. It's all there, but in between there, there's a little jab here and a little jab there. And, and thank God that I had the sense to have filters around me, my staff, just looking over my shoulder the whole time. What's that line mean? Well, you know, yeah, take it out. I'm, ex- I'm exercising several lines. It was like demon extraction out of that letter. Until it finally went out, and to the glory of God, received a ton of positive feedback. Was that my letter? Yes. Were those my words? Yes. But by the grace of God, I had filters to keep out words that would have been inflammatory, unnecessary, in addition to what was needed. Why do I tell you that? Well, probably because some of you have done the same thing, right? I wish that I always had such filters. I wish I was so in tune with the Spirit of God and everything I said and everything I wrote and everything I preached that I never needed anybody to step up to the plate and say, that was wrong, that was off, that was... But you already know that's not the case. And I mess up. And I fail. And my intentions are 
messed up. Sometimes I just sin in the process. I had a friend once tell me, Pat, stop writing personal emails when you have a disagreement. That one landed. That one landed. Because he was saying, they can't see your face. They can't see your passion. They can't see the flash in your eye. They don't know what you really mean. You're blowing it. And he was right. The Apostle Paul even had this issue. If he wrote the 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, he says, you know, when I'm with you in present, you think one thing. When, I, when I'm with you in writing, you think another. He even had a struggle with the church not really seeing what his intentions were. Our intentions are often misunderstood, aren't they? It happens. It leads to disagreements that often end up more about the way we approach the matter than the matter itself. It is maddening. Or can be. And it, that's, it's things like that that have given birth to the expression, don't shoot the messenger, right? Here's the question before we move on, on these assumptions. When you write because sometimes you have to. When you call, phone conversations. I once had somebody well, you said, well, you yelled at me the whole time. I, was on the I, never, ye- I never yelled at you. <laughs> but the phone thing can get really bad. Don't deal with things on the phone if you don't have to. But you do have to ask yourself, whether you blow it or not, what were my intentions here? You have to ask yourself, what was his intention? What was her intention? Was it to hurt me? Was the intention really to hurt me? Because if it isn't, if my intention, if their intention towards me was not to hurt me and I discern that, then be a big boy, be a big girl, and get over it. But if the intention is otherwise, then you've got you to go the extra mile and find out, find out why. But ask yourself about intentions. Here's the fourth thing. There is much effort that should go into the reconciling of a broken relationship. Can you agree with that? The scripture is really saying that. Remember, this guy, this Romans 12 guy, is the quintessential dedicated Christian who's getting a stuffing smacked out of him. What's he going to look like? What's it going to look like? What's he going to look like? What's she going to look like? Look at the phrase, if possible... As much as depends on you. Now, there's, there's your two governors I referred to earlier. This is insinuating that there is a Herculean effort that ought to be going into your life and into mine to the reconciling of broken relationships. And so you ask yourself, have I done everything within my means to be reconciled to my brother? Have I done everything I can? Here's a fifth thing. Some people are nearly impossible to get along with. Let's just concede it. As much as depends on you implies a point of exhaustion. Does it not? Sure it does. As much as depends on you implies a point of exhaustion. I've done everything I can. I'm done. I'm going to hand this over to God. And walk away. Admittedly, that's a very sad place to land. But on rare occasions, and they should be very rare, it is what has to take place. 
And even then, as we'll see in a moment, even then, God is still at work. You have to believe that. Because it all gets figured out in the end anyway, right? Right? So how do you overcome evil? How do you overcome evil? Let me give you a few ways as we bring this to a conclusion. One, first by realizing that you are part of the problem. By realizing that you are part of the problem. Can you say that? Can you admit that? When a major newspaper about 100 years ago put out a a question for everybody to write in, the question was, what's wrong with the world? And they were just inundated with responses. You can only imagine. And that was 100 years ago. But the most succinct reply and the most powerful reply came from the great Christian apologist, philosopher, G.K. Chesterton, who said, he wrote, Dear sirs, comma, I am. I'm convinced when it comes to problems in relationships that the longer you drag things out, the more you drag things in. The longer you drag things out, the more you drag things in. And I can attest every single one of you who have been in an extended issue in your life know that to be true. Because people get involved, have no business being there. You get it. All these things happen. And you, got all, you just got a catastrophe on your hands. Once in the middle of a long drug out controversy, I acknowledged that there were things that I regretted doing. I regretted saying I regretted thinking during the time we were trying to reconcile this thing, and I wasn't even a part of the initial problem. But I had unwittingly become an aid and a better to the controversy. And I had to acknowledge, gee whiz, I'm part of this problem now. I think that we need to recognize something that as sinners... We are inclined to sin. But in our pride, we don't want to admit it. We don't want to admit our sin. Our inner defense lawyer gets up, you know, comes to our rescue, defends us, right? We don't want to admit we're sinners. I mean, even Siri doesn't want to admit it's a sinner. Seriously, I was... Text, I was saying something through Siri here uh, the other day, and every time it said sinner, the word center came up. This phone doesn't even want to admit it's a sinner. This is just the way it is. Nobody wants to admit they're a sinner. Most of us want to play the victim card rather than the perpetrator. Well, I've got news for you. You're a perpetrator. And you might as well just admit it right now. You don't want to admit it, but until you do, you will be miserable. So that's the first and longest point. Secondly, give time for wrath and change. Again, look at verse 19. It says, leave it to the wrath of God. Leave it. 
the Greek phrase means give place. It implies room. It implies time. I got a phone call from a young pastor just the other day who, who called me from a, the other side of the country and he, he's, he's a great young guy, but he's in the midst of a situation. He goes, oh, this is so, he goes, what do I do about this? There's this Christian in our church. I've been working with this guy and he's doing this and he's doing that. He did, he just, he just completely screwed this up and he, and I realized this thing is taking so much longer and I, I actually messed up a couple of times and so I got with him and I asked him to forgive me for the areas I messed up. And can you believe it? He never said anything about his own sins. It's just maddening, he said. What do I do about that? I said to him, I reminded him rather, that Jesus spoke of the harvest at the end of the age, not the end of the service. Give it time. Time for God to work. Time for discipline to be applied from heaven. Time for the person to come around. And I even told them the story of a, of a man that, that was very dear to me, and I just talked to him the other day, and he's still very dear to me. A man I worked with many years ago. He was a good friend. Uh, but when my wife died, and God brought my wife Marilyn into my life, that was the controversy. I know, my wife Marilyn was the con. Well, she wasn't a Baptist. But, you know, I realized I created my own monsters in this church. I never once said that only Baptists are walking with God. I never said, but I don't know. I just, I just created monsters. People thought if everybody wasn't just like they were, they must not be right with God. I, my wife was from an evangelical free church. And it just overnight got ugly. And... They deeply hurt us by the way and the things they did. It was unbelievable. This was a guy who loved God. I couldn't believe it. And I got to a point of exhaustion. I couldn't do anything about it. He went his way. I went my way. Moved down to Sailorville. Started doing church here. Three years later, I get both a letter and a phone call. God had been working in their lives brought them to humility. They sought our forgiveness. And we were reconciled. So give time for wrath or change. Because God's good at both. Thirdly, here's the third thing. You want to overcome evil? You'll do it by destroying the records. Destroying the records. In Psalm 130, it says, If the Lord should count iniquities, oh God, God, who would stand? Implication, nobody. If God counted your sins, if he counted my sins, we'd never be able to stand with him, right? But there's forgiveness with him that he may be feared. That's what the rest of the verse says. You say, well, yeah, but that's, that's talking about salvation. That's talking about knowing Jesus. That's talking about becoming a follower of God. Yeah, but it has practical implications as well. So when you come over to the love chapter, and it's talking about how we get along with one another, Here's a verse everyone should memorize. Just a little line, really. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. You destroy the record book. If you're a record keeper, you are not acting like a Christian. Destroy the records. Give them to God. Here's a fourth thing. By following the example 
of our Lord Jesus. I mean, Peter tells us, Jesus, when he was reviled, did not revile again, but he, but he committed himself to him, his Father, who judges righteously, right? Isn't that what he did? And he tells us in that very same passage, he gives us an example to live by. I mean, that should be enough, shouldn't it? He is our ultimate example, Jesus, who took it all for you and me. And that would seem to be enough for me, but God doesn't let us off the hook that easy. He, he doesn't let us off the hook by saying, oh, God, you know, I've been persecuted. Now, you know, I just give it to you, and I'm going to walk away. Everything's going to be cool. No, he concludes it by saying, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good, which means it's not enough to make an inward commitment. We have to do an outward something because we're supposed to be otherly, right? And this is very otherly. It's pagan, and it's atrocious. It's incredibly ungodly to do evil to somebody who does good to you. It's normal to do good to somebody who does good to you, but it's Christian, it's otherly to do good to the person who does you evil. And the call here is to goodness, an active something to that person who has hurt you. Whether it's something extreme like Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband is killed at the hands of a, a bunch of uncivilized men to go back into the jungle and reach the very people he was trying to reach. Or whether it's something much simpler, much, much simpler, somebody who has hurt you in some genuine way and you are to do something good to them. That, dear friends, is otherly. And isn't that, after all, what Jesus did? God demonstrated, God showed, God displayed, God revealed his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ, in an otherly kind of way, died for us. So Jesus did that for us. We who are undeserving receive his grace. Now he's called us to be the same when we're hurt by others. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you this morning that we can come to the communion table having looked at this powerful passage of Scripture and very practically laid out lots of assumptions and realizations and, and then the call to not be overcome with evil but overcome evil with good. Help us to that end. God, I pray for every Christian in this room, every true follower of Jesus, that they would first be dedicated, and then, Lord, they would have done some serious soul-searching in their lives and, and ask themselves, is there somebody who is somebody who I have hurt or has hurt me, and I've, have I done everything within my means to reconcile that situation? Really? Have I done that, Lord? Am I willing to do that? Will I do that? Will you do that?
God, I pray that you will help us because our, your church should be a virtual lighthouse and glory for this world of people who live in this world, operate in this world, pay bills like everybody else in this world, but when it comes to conflict, we are otherly. And thus I pray, Lord, you would draw men unto yourself by the actions of your followers. And I pray for those here who do not know Jesus. Oh, they may have known church and they've been baptized and they've a hundred other things, but they're not saved. They're not Christians. If that would be you, you've never trusted Jesus, would you do so today? In an otherly way, he died for you, a sinner, an enemy of his, to make you his friend. Would you place your faith in him? And so, God, as we approach the communion table and we examine ourselves in so doing, may we purpose to do what we have to do that will bring glory to you and blessing to ourselves, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.